Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a MedPeats ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I will mention our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I am on a roll and have another co-host today, Ashka. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'll let her say hello and introduce herself. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. My name is Ashka Patel. Originally from Maryland, I attended medical school at Edward Avaya College of Osteopathic Medicine in Blacksburg, Virginia, followed by residency in internal medicine at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, where my interest in infectious disease led me home again to University of Maryland Medical Center. During my fellowship, I participated in a track to specialize in transplant ID. My interests include immunocompromised hosts, as well as medical education. I'd like to take this time now to introduce our guest, Dr. Jennifer Hassan. Dr. Hassan went to medical school at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She completed her residency in internal medicine as well as her fellowship in infectious diseases at University of Maryland School of Medicine. She also did additional training in infectious diseases and immunocompromised hosts at University of Maryland and continues to practice there, where she does consults on our inpatient transplant ID service as well as sees patients in our outpatient transplant ID service. Dr. Husson started a separate clinic to streamline the screening and care for HIV-infected transplant candidates and recipients and manage treatment of hepatitis C positive transplants. Welcome, Dr. Hassan. Welcome. Thank you both for having me. Yeah. Um, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, I like to kick off the show by asking you to share a little piece of culture that brings you joy. Well, I think the thing that really uh, brought me joy throughout this entire year and a half long pandemic and really <laughs> grounded me was uh, hiking. I love being outside, I love hiking. It's allowed me to explore Maryland quite a bit this past year and a half and spent some awesome time with my kids. Very nice. Do you have a favorite trail? Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> probably too many to count. Um, actually, my husband's from Maine. And so my favorite hiking is probably up in Maine. Um, we love Acadia, but my favorite favorite, favorite place is probably Baxter State Park. Oh, very nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, Acadia is not too far from me. So we went not too long ago. All right. So uh, today we are contacted by hepatology for a new pre-liver transplant evaluation and a patient living with HIV. So I'll throw it over to Ashka for the case. Okay. So we have a 66-year-old female with HIV and hep C as well as alcohol-induced decompensated cirrhosis who presents per request of hepatology for a liver transplant evaluation in the setting of underlying HIV. Her past medical history includes COPD. She had tobacco abuse, a 20-pack year history, but quit in 2005. HIV, hep C. Hep C, she says that she acquired through blood transfusion uh, in around 1975. She has genotype 1A. She had a liver biopsy in 2007 that showed chronic hepatitis, steatosis, bridging fibrosis. She was treated with PEG interferon alpha 2A and ribavirin for 34 weeks in 2007, but did not have sustained virological response to treatment. She also had Harvoni in 2017 with uh, SVR at 12 weeks. 
Her HIV was diagnosed in 1995 during routine screening. Risk factor was likely blood transfusion. She is unaware of her CD4 nadar, but recalls it's always been greater than 200. She has no history of opportunistic infections, and her current HIV viral load is undetectable. Her CD4 count is 279, and her CD4% is 42. Her current antiretroviral therapy is tenofovir, alafenamide, emtricitabine, and rotagravir. As far as her cirrhosis, she has decompensated cirrhosis, but no history of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Her social history, she has used inhaled cocaine and drank vodka and beer from 1989 to 2000. She has two adult kids, lives in a single family home in Baltimore, Maryland, and has a tricolor Bernadette named S'mores. Her surgeries include total abdominal hysterectomy in 1981. Okay, so as the ID consultant, can you talk to us about your general approach to transplant in patients living with HIV? What is your criteria for transplantation and other considerations at this point? Yes. Um, so, you know, when I first meet somebody uh, with HIV who wants to go, undergo transplant, um, I like to make sure that, uh, number one, that their HIV is well controlled, meaning that they have um, a good CD4 count as well as suppressed viremia. I also like to make sure that they are on a stable antiretroviral regimen, so there haven't been a lot of changes going into uh, the transplant so that we know that um, what they're on will work going forward. Right now, there's really not a lot of data to uh, support how long patients need to be suppressed, but my general feeling on the matter is that the longer the better. So if they've been on a good regimen and suppressed for a long time, I'm one more confident that they are going to stay suppressed and compliant with their regimen going forward. And two, I think that really helps decrease complications post-transplant. The major criteria for transplanting people was originally put forward for kidney transplants um, and differs just slightly for liver transplants. But CD4 greater than 200 is suggested for kidney transplants, and it's allowable greater than 100, really, for liver transplants, but always the higher the better. Undetectable viral load um, on stable ART, as I mentioned. Again, in liver transplants, sometimes we do make exceptions here. If they're not able to tolerate their antiretrovirals, perhaps they have absorption issues, things that we anticipate will be resolved post-transplant. Uh, make sure that they do not have any active opportunistic infections or malignancies or historic opportunistic infections or malignancies that are likely to recur post-transplant, that they don't have chronic wasting or malnutrition, they have established good follow-up with a provider so that we know that they will continue to follow up post-transplant, have access to getting their medications and without any issues. Um, that will be important for both their antiretrovirals as well as their immunosuppressive medications. And I also really like to emphasize vaccinations as part of the pre-transplant workup in these patients. So are there any times to make exceptions to these criteria in your opinion? Well, I think as I mentioned with liver transplant patients, we do sometimes allow for lower CD4 counts and we do occasionally allow for detectable viremia if we think that it's related to their disease. I've also 
made a few exceptions in the past for lower CD4 counts going into kidney transplant in patients who've been really well controlled, suppressed viral load for many years, who had just a progressive downtrend in their CD4 that we really thought was unrelated to their HIV and more related to their other comorbidities and diseases. But otherwise, we try to stick to the criteria as best as we can. So our patient actually has a history of uh, hep C and HIV. How does co-infection of HIV with hepatitis B or hepatitis C impact your evaluation? In a couple ways. So I think those who are co-infected with hepatitis C as well as HIV can definitely be considered for transplant and probably should be considered for transplant as long as there's a good plan to either treat them prior to or uh, most often what we do is treat after transplant. Um, And that allows them to potentially receive uh, hepatitis C positive organs as well. I think it's also important that um, co-infected patients have good assessment of their liver function going into transplant. And I say that more for kidney transplant evaluations as opposed to liver transplant evaluations. Um, It's definitely recommended to either get a fiber scan in order to assess their their, uh, liver compliance or a liver biopsy prior to transplant. Those who have significant liver disease should then potentially be considered for a dual transplant. Um, And we do know that patients with HIV, you can underestimate with some of those other markers, the severity of their liver disease. I think for hepatitis B as well, um, co-infected patients can again be considered for transplant given that they are on an antiretroviral regimen that will also um, control hepatitis B, um, especially with two active drugs Medications that include TAF and emtricitabine are great um, because they have activity against hepatitis B, but we also have lamivudine as well as um, if there's no good option for their HIV that also covers hepatitis B, we can use entecavir in addition. What do you think about her current HIV regimen? Are there any key points about her ART prior to transplant you, you want the listeners to know? Um, I think there's a couple important points about HIV regimens. So her regimen in particular um, shouldn't have any issues going into transplant. The biggest thing we need to think about is drug interactions. Um, There's a lot of drug interactions that can happen between the anticipated transplant medications and a person's antiretroviral regimen. Protease inhibitors are probably the worst offenders um, with these drug interactions. They have very significant interactions with our calcineurin inhibitors and to a lesser extent our mTOR inhibitors if those are used instead. And they really should be avoided if at all possible. The drug interaction can be quite significant and it requires a really drastic dose adjustment of your calcineurin inhibitor. And to give you an example, somebody who's not on a protease inhibitor might be dosed their calcineurin inhibitor twice a day. And then you put them on a protease inhibitor and you end up having to dose their calcineurin inhibitor once weekly or once every eight to 10 days. And it's a lot harder then to check levels and make sure that you have a good trough level. And it's really hard to 
understand what their total exposure to the calcineurin inhibitor is. And we have to remember that the calcineurin inhibitor, while it does prevent rejection and does that well, one of the toxicities associated with it is renal dysfunction and renal toxicity. And so especially for our kidney transplant patients, it's really important to keep that in mind. The NNRTIs are another class of antiretroviral, and there are also some drug interactions to be aware of with those. Uh, It's not actually as significant as the protease inhibitors, and we can generally work around those. Um, But they they do induce clearance of drugs that are metabolized by CYP3A. And so we just have to make a lot of dose adjustments. However, once that dose adjustment is made, it's easier to monitor and they get a more consistent dosing of their uh, calcineurin inhibitor. Rilpivirine would be the exception to this. Rilpivirine doesn't seem to have that interaction. And so rilpivirine we can use pretty safely in these patients. And so it's really my preferred NNRTI in this uh, patient population. Integrase inhibitors are definitely um, important backbone in in these regimens. Most patients, I will put on an integrase inhibitor, if at all possible. It is important to remember, I think, that dolutegravir can increase a person's creatinine. And so for our renal transplant patients on dolutegravir, we do need to think about that. But it doesn't actually change their GFR. It's not actually nephrotoxic. Um, It's just important to keep in mind because their creatinine does get scrutinized quite closely. You know, aside from the calcineurin inhibitor and the antiretroviral drug interactions, there are drug interactions with a lot of the other meds that these transplant patients end up on and the antiretrovirals. So antacids are actually a big culprit. So if you do have somebody you put on rilpivirine, you have to remember that you can't use EPIs. And if you're using an H2 blocker or an antacid, you really need to make sure they're separating those. Dolutegravir as well. The most important thing, if I could emphasize one thing, is to always do a drug interaction check. Uh, I do that every time I see my patients just to make sure because lots of meds get put on, taken off by other providers. And so I just want to make sure um, that there aren't any issues whenever I see the patients. And pharmacists are always my best friend. <laughs> the patient undergoes a liver transplantation with methylprednisolone induction. Her CMV status is donor positive, recipient positive. Maintenance immunosuppression with tacrolimus, mycophenolate, mofetil, and a methylprednisolone taper. What is the optimal maintenance immunosuppressive regimen for the HIV-infected transplant recipient? So I think there are two things packed in here. Um, One is actually the question about induction, and methylprednisolone is pretty standard induction at at our center um, as well for liver transplants. But I do want to mention that for kidney transplants, there is a big question about what the optimal induction therapy is. So for kidney transplants, some places will tend to lean away from using anything that's lymphocyte depleting. Some places favor lymphocyte-depleting induction agents. And there's no data to say which is better. Both have pros and cons. Our center tends to use lymphocyte-depleting induction in these patients. When we first started doing these transplants, we noticed a really, really high rejection rate. 
And so we went back to using lymphocyte depleting induction to improve that. There are studies that have found an increased rege- uh, sorry an increased infection rate in patients who got, get these um, lymphocyte depleting induction agents, though. And so there's risks to everything we do, and you have to weigh the risks and benefits. But that aside, I think for maintenance immunosuppressive therapy, there's no clear data on what is optimal. Uh, early data did suggest that cyclosporin might be the preferred calcineurin inhibitor because it had some potential antiviral activity itself. However, in the studies, um, especially the large initial multicenter trial, the HIV-TR uh, trial, um, they found that in kidney patients, tacrolimus did seem to be the best calcineurin inhibitor just because it was a had superior ability to uh, prevent rejection. Mycophenolate is a antiproliferative agent and very important backbone to the immunosuppressive regimen. That has the added benefit of actually synergizing with some of the antiretroviral agents and um, suppressing HIV replication as well. mTOR inhibitors are alternative therapies. Some, Some centers use a lot of mTOR inhibitors Ours tends not to use as many, uh, but they can be wonderful adjuncts, um, especially in this patient population. And um, they can enhance the antiviral activity of some HIV medications. There were studies done on infervitide um, quite a while ago, um, which isn't used too commonly these days, as well as epovirins. However, again, we don't use either of those as often anymore. And the last thing I want to mention is prednisone. Um, There is also debate in the community about whether or not these patients should um, stay on prednisone long-term or whether prednisone withdrawal protocols are appropriate here. Uh, There's really disparate data on this. There's a study that shows that patients did well with a prednisone withdrawal protocol And there's another study that showed that they had higher rates of rejection when they were withdrawn from uh, prednisone. So it's really center and patient dependent. If I could emphasize one thing, I would say that for a lot of these decisions, you really have to look at the patient in front of you. Each patient is a little bit different and comes with different risks. And so uh, being able to tailor their immunosuppression as well as their antiretroviral therapy to that patient um, is really important. The patient was started on PCP prophylaxis with Bactrim, CMV prophylaxis with valgancyclovir, and antifungal prophylaxis with fluconazole. As we think about our patient's HIV care after transplant, what is the monitoring strategy post-transplantation in the HIV-positive recipient? And how do you think about the risk of overall opportunistic infections in the recipient? I think for monitoring after transplant, the most important thing for me following them uh, is managing their HIV. And so um, we check their HIV viral load as well as their CD4 count one month after transplant and then every two to three months thereafter. And the goal is really to uh, trend their CD4 count and see how low they dip down as well as how long it takes them to uh, recover at least some of their CD4 count. Um, And obviously we want them to maintain viral suppression throughout that whole time. I always counsel patients when I see them pre-transplant that their CD4 
will likely go down post-transplant. If it's a liver transplant patient who's getting methylprednisolone as induction, it'll probably be a pretty transient drop. However, for any of our kidney transplant patients who might receive lymphocyte-depleting induction, it's likely to be a more substantial drop and more sustained. And if they're not prepared for that, these patients tend to be ones that are pretty on top of their numbers and their health. And so they will panic when they see that drop in CD4 count. You know, we see that the the CD4 count tends to drop quickly, close to where their nadir is. And so I really like to try to figure out beforehand what their nadir is so I can appropriately plan and counsel them as to how low I anticipate their CD4 to drop. Um, Although you never can plan for everything. And then, you know, I like to give them guidance as to about how long it's going to take, but every person's different. And if they end up getting treatment for rejection post transplant, that'll alter their course. Um, But I find that them knowing that ahead of time is really, really helpful. Uh, As far as infection risk, so, you know, I mentioned before the HIV TR study, which was the large multi-center study that first looked at transplanting these HIV-positive patients. And, you know, they really found that patients, while not at a higher risk of opportunistic infections, were at a higher risk of other infections. So we see that these patients do have a higher risk of your standard infections that we see after transplant, UTIs, pneumonias, catheter-related infections, um, the -the run-of-the-mill stuff, but not opportunistic things like PCP pneumonia, cryptococcal meningitis. And so that's, you know, that's helpful um, in preparing them, again, pre-transplant as to what's to come, Um, letting them know that these infections are pretty common and that they are completely treatable and we will treat them and take care of them and um, and get them through this immediate post-transplant course. Farther from transplant they get, the, uh, the less the risk of all of these things becomes. One thing I do like to be really careful about in these patients as well is uh, HPV. HPV is something that I don't know how much is thought about in non-HIV patients going forward with transplant other than making sure that female patients have had their yearly pap smears. I try to make sure all of my patients have had their pap smears and especially for my MSM patients, anal pap smears as well. And I find that the majority of those are abnormal in this population. Um, And so colposcopies and anoscopies um, or HRAs are very common. And I try to get those done before transplant and before really clearing them for transplant, just so we have a baseline and we know nothing. And I reassure them ahead of time that these things likely won't preclude them from going forward with transplant. Having HPV doesn't, um, even having an abnormal anal pap smear won't. However, it's information we want to know beforehand so we know how to monitor and to monitor more closely post-transplant because these things can come back a bit more aggressively post-transplant. 
you know, it, one thing to think about is whether or not these patients are vaccinated against HPV. A lot of the people, you know, I've seen already have HPV. And so it's not something that we push at all. Um, but for those who don't, um, perhaps HPV vaccine is something uh, to think about in the future for them. Another important thing I, I counsel all of my patients pre-transplant on is the risk of rejection. Most people don't know what rejection even is before their transplant. They have, haven't even really heard of it. And so I like to at least let them know that there is this entity called rejection. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to lose their their kidney or liver graft. Um, it's often treatable, but it can lead to um, graft dysfunction down the line. Um, and it's really important for our transplant patients who are HIV positive to know that they have a higher risk of rejection from all the data that we have. You know, early on, the risk of rejection seemed to be about 50%, which is much higher than your HIV negative population. More recent data, it's probably closer to about 30% um, in kidney recipients and about two times higher um, than non-HIV patients in liver transplant recipients. So it's still much higher, even though we've gotten a little bit better. I think things that have made a difference are managing immunosuppression, uh, managing our drug-drug interactions better. I think some combination of that probably is a role, but we don't really know why these patients have rejection. You know, as I just said, one thought was we were not immunosuppressed suppressing these patients enough out of the gate. And so maybe lymphocyte depleting induction was the answer. However, subsequent studies have shown that maybe those patients who got lymphocyte depleting induction have more infections. Unclear what the right answer is. And so I think when it comes to choosing induction, try to really go patient by patient. What is their risk? Are they high immunologic risk? Are they not do they have a history of infections that we're worried about? Maybe we stay away from lymphocyte depleting induction in those patients. Um, so that's actually something I do occasionally address in my pre-transplant consults from an infection perspective. What do I think? Um, do I have a strong opinion that one way or the other might be better? Another factor is that drug interactions probably played a role really early on in, in driving these re rejection rates quite high. So especially patients who are on protease inhibitors and really messing with their calcineurin inhibitor levels and exposure over time, we don't know exactly how much that, that plays a role, but it likely did. And so as we got better at predicting and using induction agents, as well as managing those drug interactions, that rejection rate has come down. Another hypothesis is that there is some sort of immune activation um, in these patients. Their immune system's dysregulated, and so they are more predisposed to rejection based on that. And we just don't really have a clear answer. So I'm upfront with the patients. I tell them we don't really know why they have a higher risk of rejection, but they definitely do. And that's something that we really need to monitor for and 
try to use that to also emphasize how important it is for them to follow up regularly, get their labs done, take their meds as they're instructed. Um, and I find that, that that works pretty well. There is some research going on as to ways to prevent this rejection. There is a multicenter study going on looking at using Moravaroc, which is actually an HIV medication. It was initially manufactured to to uh, treat HIV. It works at, by inhibiting the CCR5 receptor, which is also implicated in rejection. And so the thought is using this, whether or not it'll work for their HIV to block the CCR5 receptor and prevent rejection is a very interesting concept um, and being studied in a multi-center randomized uh, controlled study. And so hopefully we'll have results from that in the next year or so, but it would be great to have something to help lower this uh, rejection rate even further for these patients. Okay. So any, anything different in terms of prophylaxis in the HIV positive recipient that you'd like to discuss? One thing is PCP prophylaxis or PJP prophylaxis, how long to continue their prophylaxis is a big question. In the early trials, they actually recommended that the patients who were enrolled to stay on prophylaxis for life, um, which is probably too long, um, depending upon, I guess, where their CD4 count ends up. But, you know, I think six months to a year, I think you know, if you read the guidelines, it'll say about a, about a year of prophylaxis. And should they be extended further? Probably depends on where their CD4 count is at that one-year mark. There are some patients I have that start with a CD4 count of 1,000. And so while we give them thymoglobulin and their CD4 count does plummet, it goes down to 400, 500. So they're still well above 200. And in those patients, I have stopped prophylaxis at six months because they've never been even close to 200. Um, So going a year just didn't make sense to me. But I think for most people, it's about a year. Uh, And then as long as their CD4 counts over 200, I'm comfortable stopping. We don't think in our kidney or liver transplant patients much about toxoplasmosis. But certainly if somebody's CD4 count starts at, you know, 150 for a liver transplant patient or 250, they might, they might go below 100 or, um, or even lower. And so you might want to think about prophylaxing for toxoplasmosis if the, either the recipient or the donor is toxopositive. And MAC, I don't see a lot of patients who plummet below 50, but it can happen. And so, you know, azithroprophylaxis for MAC until they're over 100 again might be indicated um, as well. And we just don't think about that in our standard transplant patients. But these are also HIV patients, and we should follow the HIV guidelines as well. Histo and coxie are other things that you might want to prophylax for too, depending upon whether you're in an endemic area, um, whether the patient is from an endemic area or ever had one of those infections, or whether the donor could have had one of those infections. So you had mentioned that there is an increased risk of rejection in post-transplant and HIV-positive recipients versus HIV-negative recipients. 
what other, in your experience, differences are there in terms of their outcome and prognosis? So as I said, rejection doesn't necessarily mean that they lose their kidney or their liver graft. You know, it can definitely be treatable, especially if caught early. Um, So for those patients, we do, you know, monitor for rejection quite aggressively, and we are more likely to probably biopsy them if there's any suspicion. As far as their long-term outcomes for liver and kidney, they're actually fairly similar to HIV uninfected individuals. They have pretty good, you know, as long as there aren't any issues with stopping your medications or um, major complications in surgery, you know, they do just about as well as HIV uninfected patients, and they can have really long graft lives and, you know, go about enjoying their lives. And it's really wonderful to see, you know, the caveat to that might be the HIV hep C co-infected patients who get liver transplants. Um, The early studies really did find that they had decreased survival compared to HIV mono-infected liver transplant recipients. And that was definitely worrisome. And they actually stopped doing them at some places because of that. But this was really early and prior DAA era. And so now post-DAAs, I think most places um, are comfortable doing them and have found that they actually do have fairly similar outcomes as well. Okay, as we start to wrap up our show, we just wanted to end with a quick word on HIV to HIV transplantation. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. This is um, definitely an exciting and uh, newer development in the world of HIV transplant. Uh, One of the issues across transplant in general that we struggle with is just having enough organs. People wait on this wait list for a very long time. And we do know that patients, especially an HIV patient, getting a transplant is much better than staying on the wait list and on dialysis. They have much higher risk, higher mortality if they're on dialysis. So getting them off dialysis and into transplant is beneficial. And so, you know, there was a lot of work done by a lot of really amazing individuals um, to get some laws overturned to allow for the use of HIV positive organs in HIV positive recipients. This has to be done under a research protocol. So it has to be done at a center that's approved to do this as a research protocol. And it has to be approved by UNOS to do those. There's um, some criteria that goes into who can do them, like how many HIV patients you tend to transplant a year. And so there is an ongoing large trial of HIV to HIV positive kidney and liver transplants and smaller studies getting started in heart and lung as well. Initial reports have really looked very promising um, and show that HIV-positive donors don't seem to really adversely affect graft survival rejection. It's really promising, and um, but it's still early, so we're still following patients and, and seeing. You know, just so everyone knows, as far as donor selection in these patients goes, we do require that the donor either have well-controlled HIV on a first or maybe second line, but hopefully first line regimen, or be 
uh, ART naive. So not on any antiretrovirals, in which case they would be viremic at the time of transplant, but we know that most antiretrovirals should work to suppress the HIV. We, um, we screen pretty heavily for opportunistic infections in these donors. Some centers are actually doing living donor transplants as well from HIV positive individuals. And for those, they look for a CD4 count as well, over 500. So pretty strict criteria and well suppressed for at least six months. Um, That's definitely an area to watch as more and more data comes out. I think the kidney trial is getting ready to wrap up soon. And liver data will be coming out soon too, which will be really exciting to see. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like up and coming things and ID. And I feel like that's one of the really exciting ones. And one of the interesting things that actually came out of that study was there were a really high number of false positive donors, um, much more than you would think just by the false positive numbers for tests. Um, And the way that the testing works through the OPOs, we just don't know that we can't prove that they're a false positive. You might suspect that it's a false positive, but you can't prove it in time to allocate that organ to somebody without HIV. So those organs all go as well to our HIV positive um, patients. But a few years ago, before the HOPE Act, these organs probably would have been just discarded. They wouldn't have been used at all. And they're actually very good organs. And so that's that was an kind of unexpected perk of this. And hopefully we'll, we will continue to uh, find more and more donors who are HIV positive as well. It was a little bit slow in the beginning, getting everybody on board, um, getting HIV patients to realize that they could register to be organ donors because for so long they couldn't, um, getting providers to realize that their patients could be donors, um, getting them to refer, and uh, also getting OPOs to realize that they could work these up and, you know, it's a lot of work to work up a donor. And so working them up for just one organ that might not ever get used is not necessarily a good allocation of their resources, but seeing how many places need and want those organs, actually, um, hopefully, you know, the referrals will just keep being worked up and we'll have more organs going into the donor pool and shorter wait list times. Yeah. Well, I like to end by asking if there's any additional thoughts that either of you have. I I liked how we emphasize caution with protease inhibitors and um, reminding everyone about HPV, but uh, I'll kind of see what you guys think if there's anything else that um, might be helpful for listeners. I'll second that. Actually, um, the HPV also kind of, uh, it was a good reminder that these patients do need to be screened. Uh, Vaccinations has always been on my mind, um, but HPV is something that is definitely good to know. Yeah, I find HPV is one of those things that's not on the transplant um, group's mind often. And so, you know, I, I tend to be the one who refers for the screening and it takes time. So, it can be a little frustrating to the patient sometimes. Why do I have to go through this? But HPV post-transplant can be really significant. These things that are there can come back and come back much more severe, much more aggressive than pre-transplant. And so you really want to know what's there and what you need to monitor for. 
And I think patients do get scared that the more tests you're running, the more things you're looking for, that you might find something that precludes them from getting transplanted and they don't want that. Mm -hmm. And so I try to reassure them that all of these things I'm doing for the most part are really just to make sure that I know what I need to either prophylax for or watch for post-transplant. And that it's really in their best interest because transplant is a major surgery and it's a lifelong commitment. And the last thing we want to do is to do something to them that would actually decrease their quality of life. Our goal is to improve their quality of life. Well, thank you guys so much. I hope this inspires some people who are still deciding to do transplant or HIV or both. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Glad you guys could join us for our 20th episode. Uh, we covered a ton of ground on this topic. And if you want to read more, I highly recommend checking out the AST or American Society of Transplantation ID Community of Practice Guidelines. Um, they have one on solid organ transplantation and the HIV infected patient. Um, but as always, I will also plug our website, febrilepodcast.com, where you'll find the written complement to the show known as consult notes, as well as a ton of ID infographics, which I'll also try to keep posting on Twitter and Instagram. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.